Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, which, by the way, uh, is much more than a daily report, okay? It's, we, we, we view it as really a knowledge platform um, from which we communicate thought leadership on various strategic topics uh, through the daily reports, yes, but also these podcasts. And we do some webinars and hopefully in the future, some live events. And along with our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, who by the way, is also a professor at FIT and Syracuse University. We welcome you to our conversation on the topic of what is it about big US retailers as serial failures <laughs> in other countries, which is kind of a cynical title. Um, but of course, Shelley, uh, this theme was trig triggered by Nordstrom's uh, recent announcement uh, that they were shutting down their Canada-based Canada stores and websites, um, seven rack stores and six full-line st stores, <clears throat> all of which, by the way, only really accounted for less than 3% of Nordstrom's total sales. And profitability was, quote, unquote, elusive, uh, whatever that means and whoever said that. And of course, uh, there was the 133 Target stores that were shuttered in uh, 2015. Uh, but Shelley, this podcast is not just about Target and Nordstrom in Canada. Uh, we have a very special guest today who has the perfect uh, credentials and background to answer the question, why these serial failures and more on really, really a global scale when it involves um, retailing and consumer shopping behavior and their expectations along their retail journey. So we are honored to have Mark Cohen who to most major executives in retail, he doesn't really need an introduction, but for the new kids on the block, Mark has 35 years of experience. And most notably for this podcast, particularly, he was chairman and CEO of Sears Canada and more than 20 other major retailers uh, throughout his career uh, where he was in president, chairman and CEO level positions. And he is currently a professor at Columbia Business School, where he is sharing all of the knowledge he has absorbed over his 35 years in the business. And Mark, we really are honored to have you um, because we know you have a lot of knowledge to share with our audience today about why so many major US retailers and even other international retailers create big footprints in other than their home countries, investing billions of dollars, only to discover later that the other country's consumers apparently didn't want what they were offering. So Mark, um, from your truly global perspective, um, unwrap this very seldom understood issue, if you would please do. 
Well, you know, Canada has about the same land mass as the United States. It's actually, I think, a little bit bigger. But there are only um, 38 million or so Canadians, while there are well over 320 million Americans. So the, the demographic suggests this anomaly, a uh, large country, very few citizens. Uh, also, uh, you have to know that about 28% of Canada is Quebec, and Quebec is 100% French speaking, and in many respects is a separate country. And about 20% of Canadians live in Quebec. So the country, from a consumer point of view, from an English speaking consumer point of view is even smaller. And then of course, if you travel across the Canadian cities along the 49th parallel, like Toronto, Winnipeg, uh, Vancouver, uh, and you walk around, you see what looks like uh, people look just like Americans. They're wearing the same clothes, they're driving the same cars, the street signs are in English for the most part. Um, uh, at the end of the day, you feel like you're just in another American place. Uh, mm. Unfortunately, uh, their currency is worth about uh, 25, 30% less than American currency. And um, their uh, disposable is different because the taxes are different. And so, um, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why the numbers that look like no big deal just don't compute. And so when Nordstrom threw in the towel, uh, which they did the other day, I, I've been asked, was I surprised? And my retort was, nope, not at all. I <laughs> expected that, you know, more or less any day in light of, in fact, the weakness of their business in the U.S., which certainly casts a shadow right. on any ability they would have to stay the course uh, and, and make their investment in Canada come out. So, you know, um, they opened six Nordstrom stores. They happened to be in six locations that Sears Canada used to occupy. So I feel a little bit uh, qualified to talk about the six. That's right. Uh, when they opened them, I did have an email exchange of some consequence with Pete Nordstrom, where mm. I said uh, something along the lines of, uh, Pete, I, I, I want to guess that here are three that I think are probably doing relatively well uh, in contrast to three that are probably struggling. And I cited Vancouver, I cited Ottawa, and I cited Yorkdale. So Vancouver is a companion city to Seattle, and there's an enormous number of Canadians who regularly cross shop down into the US, into the state of Washington. And so there, the Nordstrom brand equity would be um, uh, available, apparent, and reasonably well-established. And Vancouver is a sophisticated city, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, very large Asian population, not unlike um, uh, parts of California and to some extent Seattle. Uh, Yorkdale is an upscale um, community northwest of downtown Toronto which if you're familiar with uh, New York uh, real estate, looks and feels a lot like the Garden State Plaza in New Jersey or Roosevelt Field. Um, pretty good residential population density, lots of affluence, lots of disposable, lots of sophistication. Yorkdale is the suburban bullseye, in my opinion, um, and always has been in the greater Toronto area. 
And Ottawa, which is the nation's capital, is somewhat analogous to Washington, D.C., where Nordstrom does very well. It's got a uh, large government uh, employee population that's stable, um, not subject to the vagaries of episodic layoffs, uh, somewhat sophisticated in that regard, although there is a, there is a French connection to Ottawa, which does set it off from Washington, D.C. But I predicted those three would be you know, relatively good, the mm. other three, notably Sherway Gardens, sort of a semi-upscale mall west of Toronto. Um, nice mall, not distinctively nice uh, enough as Yorkdale is. Um, and, I, and I talked about the Eaton Center, which is a, uh, a dud, you know? It's this overlarge, beautiful space uh, in the heart of the city that um, has never been particularly successful for anybody who's occupied the space. Because when, when push comes to shove, it's really nothing more than a transit hub. Hmm. There's, a, there's a tremendous amount of traffic that traverses the Eaton Center every day. Uh, but there aren't a lot of people who actually shop there. And there aren't a lot of people who live nearby. I live about four blocks from the Eaton Center. And uh, I'm here to tell you, uh, you don't see a lot of shopping bags relative to the amount of square footage that's devoted to retail. Wow. And yet yeah. Nordstrom called that out as their flagship. So they got, they got sort of like snookered into that deal. I think they got snookered into the whole package, if you want to know the truth. Uh, then there's Calgary. So Calgary is Canada's Houston, except it's uh, way colder than Houston. Uh, way less sophisticated and cosmopolitan than Houston, um, but it is the, the the capital of Canadian oil, and so I guess there's the connection. And the Chinook Center in Calgary is an upmarket, attractive center, but nowhere near what it would have to be for for Nordstrom's to make a uh, a showing. And of course, I don't think Canadians really had a clue who Nordstrom was outside of likely vancouver interesting so up up they go they open the doors lots of fanfare they have a format that they believe is a winning format certainly it has been in the united states and canadians are very responsive for the uh the uh the usual grand opening surge period which lasts maybe six months and then not so much uh it's not as if canadians are bereft with places to go for good-looking, attractive uh, quality apparel and accessories. They have stores like Holt Renfrew, and they have specialists like Harry Rosen, who uh, do a pretty good job, thank you very much. Mm. And so um, here we are. We, we survived so, COVID. They don't come out of COVID in particularly good shape. Uh, the, the rack kept the lights on at Nordstrom pre-COVID with regard to growth and profitability. And now post-COVID, if you will, the rack is struggling, and uh, with it, Nordstrom is struggling, and they can't make sense of Canada. They can't connect the dots. So, Mark, I mean, so just... Did, right? Sorry, go ahead, Robin. <laughs> yeah, Mark, what was, uh, was it Eric or Peter that you uh, talked to? I talked to Peter because you may recall I'd written something for the Robin Report yep. criticizing their selection of West 57th Street. Yeah, 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 All right. And so... Right. Uh, he politely objected to what I had to say. Uh, we had, a, um, I don't know, three or four email exchanges of some consequence. And that was on the uh, New York New York decision. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, he yeah. pointed out how wonderful the proximity was to Central Park. Right. And I pointed out that the uh, the uh, one or two blocks, city blocks between the southern boundary of Central Park and West 57th Street might as well be 10 miles. <laughs> and um, I pointed I out that Cent Central Park may have 10 million unique footsteps. Uh, I don't know whether it was a week or a month or a year, but I pointed out that Central Park has got several dozen entries and exits. And Central Park South is not the principal portal. So, so we had this sort of good-natured exchange where we agreed to disagree. Uh, I was also you know, very he, critical a, of their men's store. He, he's a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, and I remember the men's store as well. Yeah. Um, so, but what was his response uh, in your discussion about Canada? What What did well, he say? He, he he didn't reveal any of the numbers, but said that I was right on with regard to the way I characterized the six stores. Yeah. Got it. Now, yeah. now because I've been you asked. You didn't talk about the rack. No, no. Well, I, I had been critical of the rack when we talked about New York. Uh, yeah. And okay. I've been critical of the rack. I thought the rack was a brilliant idea when they launched it as a way to sweep their markdowns off their very elegant selling floor. <clears throat> Mm. And then it was very successful, and so they started to feed it, like all of these out, out, outlet uh, strategies have to do to keep their, uh, their stocks, sh uh, yeah. their shelves fully stocked. And then they started to open up lots of racks, and they got closer and closer to, you know, Mother Russia Nordstrom. Yep, yep. And Pete would say, and I've read this about the Nordstrom philosophy, that a young customer will, you know, Come Graduate. to engage with us at the rack, and then as they grow up and they become more affluent, they'll they'll migrate over to the Nordstrom store. And I pointed out to Pete that every time I shop the rack on 14th Street in Manhattan, I see affluent, well-dressed people buying things <laughs> that uh, they seem to be enjoying buying at deep discounts. Yeah. Right. And yeah. when I ask my various classes, as I do almost every semester, how many of you know the rack? They all raise their hands. How many of you know Nordstrom? They all raise their hands. And then I ask, what do you think of one versus the other? And the typical comment is, and it's typical, well, the store is beautiful and it's very elegant and it's very attractive and it's very exciting, but hey, the rack is 40 off. So I can yeah. do without the piano player and the ambiance because they've got great deals. So there you have it. Yeah, well, so Mark, let's get off of uh, Nordstrom's for just a few minutes <laughs> here. Talk to me, I, you know, I've heard you talk about this before, but give our audience a sense of globally, internationally, some of the big names that have uh, tried and failed, you know, going into into other countries, um, you know, which I understand there's quite a few. Well, most, most retailers, whether they're American, Canadian, Asian, or European, who have been so bold as to cross a national border have failed. I don't know the exact statistic, but I'd be willing to bet the majority of attempts have resulted in either failure or some suboptimal outcome, which leaves everyone uh, unhappy. Uh, Walmart is the uh, is the poster boy for global oh, failure. <laughs> so, wow. so they succeeded in Canada. Give them credit. They took over a moribund Kmart and feed it off a, uh, a failing uh, competitor called Zellers, which eventually went out of business. Right. Um, they succeeded in Mexico, where they uh, essentially bought their way into the space and uh, 
wound up uh, getting nailed by the Justice Department to the tune of a billion dollars of fines and legal fees yeah, for the 50 that. million they used. Yeah. They, they failed in the UK. They failed in Germany. They failed in Korea. They failed in Japan. They failed in Brazil. Uh, why? Because there's an enormous amount that you can't necessarily suss out either yourself by visiting the country you intend to, to move into or hiring consultants who will inform you about all the facts. Uh, and and uh, in Walmart's case, it was really egregious failure. They basically said when they bought Metro in Germany, well, we're going to open the store seven days a week and we're going to you know, bring our pricing regime to the marketplace. And somehow they missed the memo that suggested that the, Canadian, that the uh, German government decides what hours and days you can stay open and you're not allowed to do that on Sundays. <laughs> right. And the German government also regulates pricing. And so, you know, they, they basically got caught on, you know, their left foot. Um, they tried to insinuate their culture into Japan, which is in all ways you can imagine a very different culture than the U.S., let alone Bentonville. And so their investment in Seiyu turned out to be a, uh, a real thud. And it's anybody's guess whether they'll succeed in India, where they uh, moved in via an investment in Flipkart. Oh, yeah. So the, yeah. the jury's still out on that. But my guess is that might very well go the way. They do a lot of business in China. But most of it, uh, I think some 70 plus percent is in local food. Right. So they've been unable to bring their general merchandise mastery that they obviously uh, have uh, in hand in the United States into China. And so, um, you know, they've had a lot of money. They spent a lot of money. They throw money around like drunken sailors, but they don't get it. And um, go back in history, Galleria Lafayette uh, famously opened up a store on 57th Street in right. Manhattan. It failed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Marks and Spencer has had a variety of investments in the United States, all of which have failed. Uh, there's something about the insidiousness of language, culture, competition, and preference that uh, is, for many, if not most, somewhat insurmountable. The retailers who succeed are typically the mono brands, especially the luxury mono brands that have a marquee brand equity that's easy to present in a reasonably sized footprint. Uh, right. uh, and they typically are successful. And then on the lower end of that mono brand scale, Starbucks has been successful, although they've had to overcome the barrier in China of consumers who don't drink coffee. And now they started to acquire a taste for it. So it's a fool's effort for most. And, and I think, as I've mentioned to you before, the one shining star uh, is Costco, yep. which has got stores all over the world and has, to my knowledge, never stubbed their toe or failed. Um, hey, Mark, let's talk about that in a second, because I think you're right, spot on with that. And I think we have some numbers that we can uh, talk to our audience about. But when you and I were speaking the other day, you also mentioned Saks to Canada. Didn't work. That was a joke, right? Um, we also talked about Gap to Europe and elsewhere. Mostly failed. Abercrombie and Fitch to Europe. 
Hmm. Mostly failed on and on and on. And it's true. There's just these countless number of big name failures. And Robin and I just did our podcast on the impressive turnaround of Abercrombie and Fitch in the US market. It was called Dying a Decade Ago on a Hot Rocket Back to Cool. Yep. But you're right, Mark. You were spot on. Guess what? The international segment, even now, as they're skyrocketing up, was down low double digits last year. The EMEA was down 12% and APAC was down close to 30%. And they have 16 international stores plus the digital presence. So when we talk about these kind of international expansions, you know, what else is going on? Why is it, why is it so difficult to be successful? Well, the brand equity doesn't travel the way everyone would like to think it travels. Gee, doesn't everybody know Abercrombie? Well, they might have some awareness in Europe of Abercrombie, but not anything like what Americans have. Uh, then, of course, there's the embedded, enormously challenging issue of logistics. Everything about operating in a different place brings to bear uh, risk challenges, peril, if you will. When you talk about Canada, the logistics of doing business in Canada is night and day different, not just because the currency is very different, because the, the distance between marketplaces is enormously challenging. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, take Abercrombie, you know, uh, Mike Jeffries reached for these very high profile marquee flagship locations, which he was willing to pay any price to get. Except, as you all know, in retail, it's kind of like a simple, stupid arithmetic. If your rent far exceeds the gross margin of the sales you might bring in, you've got a problem right out of the gate. And that's been an issue, certainly for Abercrombie, was an issue to a large extent to the, for the gap. Um, and, uh, you know, think about the customer. The presumption that your brand will shoulder aside the local heroic brands just because of who you think you are is a fool's view because it just doesn't happen. You've got to earn your stripes every day after the grand opening surge is over. And um, you got to bring something to bear that differentiates you and you've got to be able to sustain it. <clears throat> and in many places, the competition doesn't roll over and play dead. They fight back. And they know what they're doing when they fight back. And so there you have it. But Mark, yeah, the, I mean, sorry. Yeah, the, the word hubris comes in very strongly here. <laughs> and you think your brand is going to resonate anywhere in the world. Right. Well, so, Richard Baker, Richard Baker uh, had this uh, very fanciful view that he was going to move Saks into Canada. Yeah, right. I remember. And so he moved Saks into a cavernous base <clears throat> store on Queen Street in Toronto which was completely wrong as a location. If he had moved Saks up to Bloor Street, which is where the action is from a luxury player point of view, Saks might have had a chance. But uh, Queen Street, by the way, is across the street from the Eaton Center. So, you know, just never had a chance. Uh, he also, as you probably remember, opened up a handful of Hudson Bay department stores. Oh, right. In, in the Netherlands and in, uh, in Belgium, which was part of a real estate deal he had done with Karstadt in Germany that involved taking over a uh, retailer's uh, box, a retailer which had been called Hema, 
which had been owned by Dubai Corp. This is all backroom stuff that goes on in terms of swapping spaces. And that was an extraordinary failure. And oh, by the way, I have to add this. I didn't write this to you. Um, <laughs> when, when having lunch at one of the world retail conferences in uh, Amsterdam a few years ago, with a with a with a let's say a table full of Amsterdamers, <laughs> I said, uh, "So, what do you guys think of the HBC HBC stores that just opened?" And they started laughing and laughing and laughing. And I knew that the store wasn't doing any business. It was a beautiful looking store, but not doing any business. And I said, "So, tell me." And they said, "Well, you know this this lunatic Richard Baker <laughs> cut the ribbon uh, when the store opened and pronounced the fact that the stores would." undeniably be successful because because the dutch love canadians and they love canada because the canadian army liberated amsterdam at the end of world war ii and i'm listening to this and then they said well i guess he doesn't realize that the only people who are alive who might remember that are in their 80s <laughs> and they don't shop anymore right, right. certainly not for the things that the hbc sells so, you know, this was another expression of hubris, uh, faulty thinking uh, that just fell flat on its keister. But Mark, I have to ask you, like, seriously, the, the, you're talking about these major brands going into these countries like they didn't ever do their homework. I just don't get it because you said yeah. you weren't surprised when Nordstrom's was not successful in Canada. We have a writer that for the Rob Report, Jasmine Glasheen, she's awesome. And she was said the same thing. I'm not surprised. It makes perfect sense when you consider the premium that Canadian consumers place on buying locally, which I didn't know this until I read her article, but 86% of Canadian consumers prioritize shopping at small local businesses. So I, I'm just confused at you know what, what's happening. And the other thing you mentioned, Mark, I'd love for you to expand upon is you said something about Nordstrom's getting suckered into some bad real estate. Can you mm. tell us a little bit about that too? Well, the, the entry into Canada was a package deal. So, so they, they, they wanted to go to Canada. The Sears Canada stores were available because Eddie Lampert put everything, including the paint on the walls up for sale. And here are the six preeminent locations or among the six among the most preeminent locations in Canada from a real estate perspective. And so they did an all on deal, which allowed them to launch all of them at once, which at face value is kind of an efficient way to enter a, a market, you know, rather than one at a time, but, but they're not six equal opportunities. And let me just harken back to these deals. The Hudson Bay company brilliantly snookered Target into buying the entire Zellers real estate portfolio. Yep, I remember that. Uh, which I was very familiar with because, because Hudson Bay, pre-Richard Baker, had been trying over a period of several years to convince Sears Canada to buy them. Mm. And so, you know, I did have two opportunities to get deep into the weeds of their numbers. Half of those Zellers locations were on the wrong side of the tracks. They were the original Zeller stores in marketplaces across Canada that had been when they opened a retail bullseye. But over the over decades, 
the bullseye on the population had shifted from one quadrant of the suburban uh, community to another. Walmart had taken over a crappy Canadian Kmart and it migrated to a different part of the city with a new Walmart Canada superstore. And so Target took over a portfolio, which was half garbage. Interesting. Right out of the yeah, gate. Amazing. And they had the belief that since we're Target and we're special and we have this enormous uh, cachet with our customer, we'll overcome that issue of location. Of course, you know, guess what? Didn't happen. Among other mistakes they made, that was a terrible mistake. Because as we all know, when you right get that, when you get right down to it, it always is location, location, location when you're talking about physical retail. So, yeah, Mark, uh, let's go back to Costco. Um, I know Shelly's got some numbers on that, but you um, had said at one point, you know, Costco, every, every other country they have entered, uh, you said they've been successful. And, um, and you mentioned why, and you, you said because they looked before they leapt, before they jumped in. And look, meaning that they did their homework, right? They did their research. Well, you know, you know, um, most retailers, especially American retailers who jumped into China, have either retrenched or outright failed. Or if they still exist, it's in partnership with a local uh, joint venture partner who who controls and runs the business. Um, Costco seeded their Kirkland Signature private label branded goods into China seven years before they opened their first store. They did it by selling those goods through Alibaba and Tencent um, to familiarize Chinese consumers with those brands. And they also began to uh, uh, publicize their format, which is a subscription format, which is certainly uh, not uh, native to China. And so they spent seven years doing a lot of business through third parties, mm. enabling them to study preference and price and geography and nuance, which is a whole mouthful because China is a tremendously diverse country in every way you can imagine. And yep. so pre-COVID, they opened a store in Shanghai and they got like 200,000 subscription applications <laughs> right out of the gate. And Unbelievable. The, the day the store opened, the week the store opened, the 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 Shanghai police had to shut down access to the neighborhood because wow. of the enormous traffic uh, that they drew. Now, this is this is an example of looking before you leap, watching closely, studying, doing your your da your darndest to understand what you might be getting into. And then not opening seven stores in Shanghai, but opening one. You know, they've yeah. taken this thoughtful, careful, common sense driven approach everywhere they've expanded. And of course, they do have a format that is somewhat unique in the world. They're not the only warehouse uh, player in the world. But um, why do they succeed? Because their assortments are uh, uh, completely differentiated in the eyes of their target customer. Their pricing is is uh, ruthlessly competitive, and they're they're fun to shop in. It's they not are. a faceless yeah. 
you know, uh, awkward place. It's an inviting place in spite of the fact that it's a, a very large oversized box with concrete floors and metal shelves. It's like a treasure hunt. Uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So Costco, and of course, any retailer who is successful today could fail tomorrow, but look at their business as an, as, as, uh, as illuminated by their last quarter's results. I think they were up 6.7%, something like that. Everybody else, and this is excluding gasoline. Everybody else is crying the blues and what's Costco doing? They're just smacking the ball over the fence. And they've been doing that for years. Shelly, I'm a big fan you, of Costco. Yeah, yeah. Shelly, yeah. you have some numbers on that. They had an incredible year. So um, they, uh, well, they have a 848 warehouses worldwide, 584 in the United States. And then they have some in Canada, Mexico, Japan, United Kingdom, Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan Australia, Spain, et cetera. So 73% of the revenue is US, 14% is Canada, and 13% is other uh, international. And here's the crazy thing, net profit. So their physical year runs a little different. It runs July to August. So I'm giving you numbers for ending August, 2022. Their profits were up 17%. Profits up 17%. Net sales were up 16%. But you know what's even more impressive when I actually look, dive into the numbers? When I look at their fiscal year, US up 17%, Canada up 16%, international up 10%, bang, bang, bang. And also their membership fees are up 9%. So you have more and more uh, memberships, you know, in terms of, you know, their expansions. So the renewal rate, get this, Mark and Robin, the renewal rate of membership in the US is 93%. In Canada and international, it's like, 90%. Wow. It's like it's unbelievable. And uh, here's the here's another number that I know Mark will appreciate. Their SGNA, so running stores and operations, was 8.8%. The year before, 9.7%. The year before, 10%. And like you said, you know, they just posted their Q2 recently and revenues up like 7%, 6-7%. So um, it's really a tribute to how they're going about their expansions. Yeah, and there's a lot, obviously, big lessons there to be learned by, you know, our audience and everybody else out there. Uh, Mark, you know, just to get into Walmart a little more here, they did fail their first attempt in China. But according to Statista, they now have approximately 10,500 stores worldwide and uh, clubs, including clubs, um, under 46 banners in 24 countries and also e-commerce. And they have about, now have about 400 stores in China. Um, but it obviously was not an easy path for them. Um, they initially entered China in 1996. They did not have enough of a localized product catering to the Chinese market. The other major factor in 1996 was consumer preferences in that market uh, was really towards Walmart's knockoff competitor, which is Sun Art Retail Group. And Mark, as you know, two years later, uh, two years ago, Alibaba spent, I think it was about 3.6 billion to gain a 70% share of uh, Sun Art. Um, so the competition is even more heated than it was back in 1996. 
And Sun Art uses local source suppliers, think Costco again, uh, that are more in line with uh, the target market and with the deep pockets of Alibaba. They've li likely kept Walmart from gaining a larger footprint. In fact, Walmart uh, is now, was it 450 stores at one point and they're now down under 40 and they're struggling to make, uh, make profits. They're down um, under 400. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, if, anyway, if, if yeah. Walmart was a, Walmart is obviously, as we all know, a public company, but Walmart is not really a public company. The, the, the Walton family still has a tremendous stake, right. a control stake in the business. And so if Walmart was uh, exposed to activists, as most public companies are when they, they, they demonstrate suboptimal results, uh, they probably would have been under tremendous pressure to uh, pick up their uh, their toys and leave China, as many American retailers have had to do. Uh, so they're not going to do that because that would be uh, contrary to their ethos, which is where Walmart and we're going to be successful wherever we decide to be. Walmart doesn't have a differentiated offer to consumers. Mm. They just don't. And so trying to sell general merchandise products in China is a hopeless proposition uh, unless they have some sort of a foothold and they don't. And uh, competition in China is as ruthless as it is anywhere else. And, and so they, they hire some Chinese executives and they transplant some people out of Bentonville and they insinuate themselves as if the, the Chinese consumer is going to embrace them. Yep. And there isn't any good reason why they should. So I think they have no chance at remediating the situation they've put themselves in in China. No chance, especially with regard to Alibaba's avaricious view of competition, okay? Uh, I'd be willing to bet they're not going to be successful in India. Uh, and I think they know it because I think after they bought Flipkart, they offered up a fairly sizable equity stake, uh, looking for minority partners to, uh, yeah. to shoulder some of their investment. So, uh, you know, this, this, this idea that we're, we're good, we're successful, we're big, we know what we're doing. Uh, we can, we can travel across the globe and, you know, like John, Johnny Appleseed spread our success. <laughs> just doesn't work that way. Just yeah. doesn't work that way. Well, and, I, um, you know, woe wo, wo, wo to the folks that get caught up in that, in that thinking because they usually get killed. Yeah. Well, here, here was, I, I would say this about the, since you mentioned China, we're talking about China, is, you know, Amazon, I mean, Amazon touches anything and it turns to gold. Guess what? Couldn't survive in China, right? And like Walmart, who also not really highly successful, certainly not profitable, they keep losing money there. Um, they just didn't take into account the consumer market preferences and the stiff competition, notably for Amazon, Alibaba and JD.com, which owns 80% of the market. So poor Amazon sitting there in China with less than 1% yeah. and they end up well, getting out of it. So here, here's, here's, here's what it is. You said it. You know, Costco was smart. They actually partnered with online first at first. They partnered with the most well-known 
retailer there, Alibaba, Tmall, JD.com, to make Kirkland a well-known, trusted brand. And Costco, here's an idea. Instead of going up against Alibaba, like Walmart and Amazon did, Costco actually partnered with them. Brilliant, right? Yep. Well, Amazon was smart enough to uh, pick up their uh, pack up their tent before they made much of an investment. Now, yeah. let me let me talk about India for a little bit. Um, there was a there was a bidding war between allegedly Walmart and Amazon uh, for Flipkart. Interesting. And and Amazon dropped out allegedly right at the outset, whereas Walmart jumped in and spent something like sixteen or seventeen billion dollars. This was a Mark Lorry led foray into uh, e-commerce expansion. Flipkart does all of its business in English, yet only 10% of Indian consumers use English as a primary language. Hmm. Flipkart is all English. Amazon, on the hmm. other hand, which chose not to try to buy Flipkart, has, I think, three different sites in three different indigenous languages widely used throughout India. So they're taking a much slower, uh, more thoughtful pathway to uh, the consumer. And of course, as you probably know, the logistics in India are absolutely in, uh, bizarre in that the service and supply issues um, are, are tremendously challenging because India doesn't have the infrastructure to service customers the way, of course, the U.S., Western Europe, and to some degree, China has. So, so you know, whether, whether Flipkart succeeds or fails, my guess is not. Whether Amazon succeeds or fails, let's see what happens. And, the, and the, the linchpin, of course, is several months after the Flipkart deal closed, the Modi government, the Modi government, uh, enacted legislation which limits the ability of an of an of a international player to have principal control over a business they invest in in India. I, I'm, mm, guessing, I'm guessing that Amazon knew that that legislation was in the, in the, uh, in the, in the pipeline, and Walmart didn't. And yeah. then, of course, to add in, insult to injury, the CEO of Flipkart was uh, ejected some six weeks after the deal closed because of some scandal involving his personal behavior. Now, I don't know whether Amazon had a lock on to what he was or wasn't up to, but I'm pretty sure they had a, a pretty good idea about what kind of uh, a political platform uh, existed in India and therefore were necessarily being very cautious. So you got to have a brand that's got tremendous equity and and uh, differentiation. You got to have a lot of thoughtfulness behind a decision, and you've got to really take your time to study the facts and uh, the folks that don't die. Well, you know, Mark, <clears throat> this has been an incredible conversation, and um, I mean, my God, you really understand the global situation. Um, in a lot of these countries down to down to detail. So, and, and you know, there's one thing that you said um, about Costco, they never entered a foreign market and failed. And, and again, as I said before, you said, why? Because they look before the, they leap. So Mark, as usual, you cut through all of the noise uh, to turn common sense into brilliance. And indeed, it makes us wonder 
how some of the best and brightest minds in the C-suites across global retailing leap before looking. So thanks again, Mark. Uh, you know, being the professor you currently are, we all learned a ton today. Don't you think so, Shelley? Absolutely. I love yeah. having Mark on our show. You get more than you asked for. So Mark, well, thanks again. <laughs> thank you for having me. And uh, all I can say is the, uh, the madness goes on. Oh, yes. <laughs> we know it well. Mark, it's always a pleasure spending time with you. Uh, I always learn something every time I spend time with you. So that's always a, a great thing. For our listeners, you can find more of our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and of course, the RobinReport.com and look for us on YouTube where we broadcast our podcast as well. And make sure you follow us on social media, link in with us for the latest thoughts about the industry. And I want to thank everybody again for joining us. And as I say every week, if you've got some idea in your mind that you would like Shelly and I to cover, um, please send me an email, robin at therobinreport.com. Thanks again for the barking dog in the background. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. You bet. Talk to you all soon.